Hey everybody, it's Dave from Nerds on Film. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, why don't you come out and check out our other source of media? It's our very own website. That's right, ladies and gents. We have a website dedicated to both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. You can hear the podcasts, but you can read our blogs, live interactive content. Check it out. There is a feedback page. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. We listen because we're good like that. Anywho, check us out. Let us know what's going on. See you in the fun news. Listening to Nerds on Film with Brian Moriarty, David McGuire, and Sarah Ashley. Okay, so you guys last night went to go see Jurassic Park in 3D and IMAX, right? Not yeah, IMAX. We did. we did not see an IMAX. We saw it in XD. XD. What's the difference between XD and 3D? XD well, it's and the same 3D. thing. XD is just the experience. It's the the theater that it's done in is a much larger space with a curved screen. Um, like I think it's Dolby 7.1 sound, leather okay. seats that recline. Okay. And um, awesomeness. Did actual dinosaurs jump out at any point? There was some scarring. Okay. Not from us, but from other ongoers. Cool. Yeah. So this kind of begs the question, I think. Uh, maybe it doesn't beg the question, but I think we should still ask it anyway. Yeah. If you could recast Jurassic Park with your dream actors, dead or alive, Ooh. from all span of time... Who would you recast? And yeah, David, since you have the IMDb page up, can you go through the cast of of the characters and we can say who the actors are? Yes, I didn't have the IMDb page up, but I did. I did there. David, get on your shit. <laughs> Is this because I've been gone for so long? You guys Absolutely. make me your yeah. your cabana boy. By the way, David's back permanently. Yeah, welcome Until back, we sir. Until yeah. clean the fucking floor. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so much animosity. Thanks, guys, for supporting me in my endeavors. Oh, by the way, David, go suck a nut. That's, that's what I hear from that. So is that a kitten <clears throat> in a bucket? Or... <laughs> okay. So our list, right, we're going to just go down individually. So the first one on it, Sam Neill played Dr. Alan Grant. Ooh, Dr. Alan Grant. Would you recast Dr. Alan Grant? And who would you... Well, I think we would assume we would recast almost everybody, right? Yeah, Everyone but Samuel. Yeah, yeah Samuel, Samuel, there's no Samuel way that Jackson Samuel stays. That's just hands down. Um, I don't know. Alan Grant, right? Tall, brooding, <gasps> smart. Cary Grant. <gasps> Ooh, I like that. What up, Cary Grant? That's well actually a really good one. Yeah, well thank you. I wouldn't have thought about that. Tall, he's, he's brooding, smart, dashing. intelligent. Or <clears throat> and he could play that whole father figure Liam really Neeson. well. Who? Liam Neeson. <laughs> I don't Liam know who Neeson you are. Do it. I don't know where you're at, but I'm going to find you and I'm going to make you extinct. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I'm also going to feel for children by the end of this movie. Although maybe Liam Neeson would be a little too close to. Um, yeah. I'm going to throw one out there. Okay. Steve McQueen. Oh. Ooh. So what you're saying is that they would have to put an actual like Jeep chase for him, <laughs> but somehow the Jeep morphs well, into like a, a dinosaur, right? But just he'd he'd be the one driving the jeep. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. the only thing. Okay, okay. Only in this time, the the jeep is not really a jeep. It's actually a uh, Nazi. It's a Chevy. <laughs> it turns out that the the the, uh, the dinosaurs were in fact Nazis. They were. <laughs> oh, I see. You're going for the Great Escape there. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They now, were genetically modified and then fed Mein Kampf. Now, what if the char- what if the character had to be comedic? What if it was a comedic movie? What if it was Jurassic Park the comedy? Um, Jim Carrey, Jerry Lewis, mm. and Alan Grant. 
Oh my god, there's dinosaurs. Leuven! Oh god. Well, you see the uh, the raptor. You you it looks you in the eye and you think if you don't move, you know you're gonna it won't see you like it would. But then Hablagen it gets you with its claw and it slashes you. Hablagen there or Hablagen there. <laughs> And you bleed out, and they start eating you while you're still alive. I'm lying. <laughs> Who wants lunch? With the with with the raptors in the jungle and the hurt. <laughs> <laughs> with the jungle. And the cow eating. <laughs> oh God, I'm just getting hives just thinking about it. Um, okay. All right. The next one was uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler, which mm. was played by Laura Dern. Okay. Um, so we're looking for a more stoic female. Yes. To be a little bit more poised. I would have to say, even though people don't like her, Angelina Jolie. I think she could play that part. Uh, She's poised enough where, and then there's this, just, a, just, just a small amount of action. Okay. I mean, not like my first choice, but I could see her portraying that in a, that in a, in a reboot. That would definitely be like a, a, a harder, tougher version. Yes. If you wanted to say, maybe go a little bit more of the um, softer, empathetic kind of version... Amy Adams, I think, actually would probably be pretty interesting to see in that role. Because mm. I, I think that she could probably hang with having to toughen up. I think that she can definitely show emotion. Well, that's better. true. And I think she would be pretty comfortable um, reaching into dino poop. It's a big pile of shit. <laughs> I'm going to go classical here. Okay. okay. Ingmar Bergman. Oh, my God. I'm not going to lie, dude. I literally was just thinking that name thinking as that? you said it. Well Total done. Empathy. Well done. Hmm. Yeah. That's I can see that. Choice. Ooh, if we're gonna do that, um, okay, I'm gonna be totally scoffed at right now. Inger Berman, was she? She wasn't in Casablanca, was she? She was. Mm-hmm. Okay, she she was the yeah. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's super. She's super cute, and she definitely has that poise to be able to play that part. Yep, she's got the range for it. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's go down to uh, Doctor Ian Malcolm, which is played famously by Jeff Goldblum. Gender okay. swap. Whoopi Goldberg. Ooh, throwing the gender swap card out there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue 1950s Warner Brothers and go Humphrey Bogart. It's chaos, she. It's a chaos theory. You know what the chaos theory is, she? Yeah, life finds a way. Actually, you know who I would go for? Jason Schwartzman. Really? We're going to go contemporary. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He can play that, sh- that kind of sarcastic know-it-all kind of mentality what is the look why are you giving me the look okay no i was just gonna say that i I could totally see jason schwartzman kind of being close to jeff goldblum's performance but kind of retaining and as as his own especially if we want to do like the comedy version i recant that i think i would want to cast bogart in something else um thinking about it thinking about it i think bill murray would actually probably be good in that role too Ooh, that'd be a sleeper choice bill murray would be great in that, actually. He'd be a very big sleeper choice in that. You know who Bogart might be, and I'm skipping someone here, it would be Robert Muldoon, played by Bob Peck. Robert Muldoon was the hunter. Bingo, that's what I was thinking. Right. Yeah. Bogart yeah. would be a good part for that. Yeah. yeah. So who would be... Um... Okay, that's where Liam Neeson comes into play. <laughs> so, right. going backing up for a little bit. Uh, we skipped over John Hammond by Richard Attenborough. Who was, of course, the, the millionaire. Right. All right, I'm going to say it. Go ahead. Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no. No? No. No? Nope. I don't, do not see it. Pacino. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's the only Pacino <laughs> you guys do. <laughs> you, uh, you want to come to my island? I got oh, yeah. I got I'll find your dig for three years because that's a great dig. You just said, oh, you yeah. just said dig. I said dig. dig. Yeah, it sounded, dig. It sounded like dick. D-I-G. 
Not Dick. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Just clarify. I wasn't going to say that he was looking at <laughs> Sam Neill's package. Awkward. No, I don't. I'm not serious you, about I Al Pacino. Feel like you might sort of kind of be onto something with Dustin Hoffman, but not now. Like <clears throat> Dustin Hoffman, maybe in a few years. Yeah. I would not hate seeing uh, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen Ooh. was actually something I was thinking. Yeah, he could be good. Welcome to Jurassic Park. But I just think that Ian McKellen's like awesome in everything. And That's I want very him true. To be in so. <gasps> oh, got yeah. one better. Okay. Ian Holm. You're an idiot. <laughs> I'm kidding. What? I just wanted to. Throw What's wrong with Ian Holm? I don't know who's wrong with Ian Holm. It's an interesting choice, but I don't agree with that. Oh my God, let's back up. Um, <laughs> back to Muldoon. Okay. Well, well he's next on okay, the list. Okay, sorry. My bad. But just save it. Okay. So you're, so no one likes the Ian Holm as a. I not necessarily no. All right, who was your choice? Ian McKellen. Okay, and then you you I'm agree? Go with okay. McKellen, yeah. All right, so then for Robert Muldoon, we had Bogart thrown out there. Um, I said I said Liam Neeson could play that part. Sarah. I can't remember his name now. Fuck. What movie, movie. was he in? We can help you. Uh, Matrix and Lord of the Rings. Oh, Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. <gasps> Hugo Ooh. fucking Weaving. He'd be good. He'd be good. Yeah, Megatron take down the Raptor, but then he gets mm-hmm. killed by the Raptor. Right. He had to work out. I think that Hunter's supposed to be athletic, is he not? Yeah. But he's, he's he's fit. I think it's he's like he's it's not like yeah. he's rotund. I know he's thin. He's I mean so he could bulk up. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he could bulk up. Yeah. I yeah. want to just hear him I mean, say shooter. Like, and it's not like Muldoon was like he wasn't ripped. ripped. He wasn't like okay. fucking Schwarzenegger out there. So okay. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Who's the next person? Uh, Donald. Janeiro, which was played by Martin Fierro. And then this man was the lawyer. Oh, the lawyer guy. He was the lawyer guy who was... It, for those of you that were wanting to know what the character is, he was um, the investor's lawyer. He was on the island to ensure that the people that Richard Attenborough had brought to the island actually would endorse it so that way he can then go back to the investors and let them be all at ease. As a smarmy lawyer or as somebody that's kind of all about the money... Um, who? B. Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. No. no, because then that would be so depressing when she gets eaten on the shitter. <laughs> I kind of like B. Arthur as the choice. <laughs> no, um, Morgan Freeman. No. Oh, Again, that was just for second humor. I just want to test the waters. <laughs> <laughs> because if they don't like the park, I'm gonna go back and tell the other folks that nobody liked the park. <laughs> I, I just can't see him. No, no, it, it would, it no. would, it, it it would be like that moment in Deep Blue Sea when he gets eaten by the shark. Like everyone would be like, Morgan Freeman, why are you running to the bathroom? And then the Tyrannosaurus Rex eats him, and everyone's gonna be like, the f- what the fuck? Really? <laughs> just out of nowhere, no one would like that ending. Yeah, it's because of the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe Morgan. Name. Okay, how about this? Morgan Freeman and Shawshank, right before his his rocket really took off. No, 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 no. Um, <gasps> Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Brian? No, no, no. Okay, my, my Albert Brooks. Ooh. It would be funny. He'd be the comic relief until he gets killed. Had he not done Drive, what I wouldn't those? have been. What, I would. What, what are those? Are they heavy? That means they're expensive. Put them away. Actually, no. He would actually because the idea is that this lawyer is right. Com- is, he is the comic relief. But here's the thing, though, is that had he not done Drive. If we were saying that this reboot was to happen before Drive, I would have been totally on board. But Drive, he showed a side to him that I would be like, I don't want you to be that lawyer. I want you to go be a bad guy. Brian Cranston. But see, uh, but I he can't. Could do it. He could do it. I just. There's a lot of people who I think could do that role actually pretty well. I would also think um, Tony Hale. 
who played Buster Bluth in Arrested Development. Oh, oh, yes. Now he would be good. The only thing is, is he would look too much like the lawyer. All right, we're at the kids. Tim, who was originally Tim Murphy, was originally played by Joseph Mazzello. Who ended um, up being on the Pacific. Right, yeah, that's his new, like, credit. I would probably say... Elliot from E.T. at that age. Okay. Fred Savage. Ooh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Same thank thing. You. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Good call. And, and Princess Bride age, right? Yes. Yeah. I would even say... A little bit older. I would say like, more like the wizard. Oh, the wizard. Okay. I would yeah. even say Haley Joe Osment could pull it off. I was thinking that, too. Yeah, probably. Freddie yeah. Highmore. Around, like, second-hand yeah. lions. <gasps> Ooh, Freddie Highmore. Yeah. I guess so. Um, and the sister was Lex Murphy, played by Ariana Richards. I'm just going to say it. Lindsay Lohan when she was younger before all the drugs. Okay, I'll give you that. Parent I'm going to go with Na- Parent Trap Lindsay Lohan. I'm going to go with Leon the Professional Natalie Portman. Ooh. You're welcome. Mm. You're welcome, world. She hmm. might be too good. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Natalie, you can't be in this movie. Why? You're too you're good. Just, you're just too good. <laughs> you're going to make you're going to make Jim Carrey and Mr. Bogart very upset. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Brian? I don't know what I think. Um, that one I'm having a hard time with. Ooh, young Anna Paquin. Kristen, Kristen Dunst. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I'm like Dunst. Jumanji age, Kristen Dunst. Okay, I'll give you that. Okay. Well done. Sure. Awesome. And we always agreed that uh, that Samuel Jackson stays. Samuel yeah. Jackson. Oh, wait. What about Newman? Oh, that part, character? Seth Rogen. Why not? <laughs> Why yeah. I would never believe he was a computer hacker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, maybe maybe uh, Jay Burrishell. Yeah, Okay. He's uh he was the guy that was like he was sorcerer's apprentice. He was the sorcerer's apprentice. He was in uh knocked up. He was the one that oh, was yeah, like, that I'm going to help you rear your that child. Guy, that guy. That yeah. that guy with the Canada maple flower on his chest. Maple leaf. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jason Siegel. He could play a He could definitely do it. Yeah. Yeah. He could play an asshole and computer hacker. I'd buy it. I just I'm trying to picture somebody who's going to be dumb enough to engage that tiny little dinosaur. That part I would believe Seth Rogen, but uh John Belushi. Hmm. Oh. You're welcome. Well done, actually. That's yeah. good. That's really good. Go with that one. You're welcome. He just gave himself a high five. <laughs> okay. As we call that back home, that was a clap. All right. Um, so, anyways. with that, welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Dave McGuire, who is back permanently. Hooray. You're back. So, I hear you uh, You took a trip to Guam and then got attacked by ninjas and they held you hostage for two months? Is that oh, what happened? I don't know where and you heard he that. Escaping, that was escaping, com- he got into a knife fight with a barracuda. Wow, you guys need to stop reading the tabloids. That ship was in tabloids? <laughs> oh, wait, I'm not that big yet? No. Oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> I was just going off your Facebook update. Your movie hasn't come out yet, David. No. <laughs> <laughs> if this garners me wow. any sort of attention from a national inquirer, I'm going to be like, make up as much shit as you want. That's fine. I did not go to Guam. It was Bermuda. I did not get into a bar fight. I got into I a fish a fight. Knife fight with a barracuda. I got into a I got into a gun fight with a great white shark. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my bad. Great white shark with like a pump shotgun. Thug <laughs> <laughs> life. Except, except he can't actually like he can't actually aim because he, he can't bend his neck. So he's and just that's like, um, and that's you. I'm picturing Jabberjaw. Jabberjaw. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. I wish that was true, because then I could make a movie about that, and I would make millions. There's a movie that should never be made, Jabberjaw, the live-action sequel, or the live-action movie, period. I don't know what Jabberjaw is. Jabberjaw is a shark. 
that is nervous. Hand, He's very nervous. It was He's a, a very Hanna nervous Barbera cartoon. Hmm. It was one of the many ones that came out like during that time. Like the Johnny Quest, like, Flintstones kind of. No, not no, not action oriented. No, no, no. It's very much comedic. It was it was like a Saturday morning cartoon where it was like a. It was back when they realized that Scooby Doo was a really good formula. So they took a band of kids and then some weird animal that could talk or something, and they just like went on like these kooky adventures. But yeah. this is this one happened to be a band. They were an actual band. They were band. And Jabberjaw was the drummer. It was a shark that was a drummer. And again, he was very nervous most yeah. of the time. Oh, well, oh, right, because every animal needs a needs a trait. Yeah, yeah. this one was to make him Jewish. Apparently, if you're going to anthropomorphize them, then half. You have to give them some sort of humanistic trait that's going to make them separate from all the other animals. I I did say that, and that sounds very racist. I don't mean that at all. It's literally that's the stereotype they played with him. Yeah, like he had that very. Well, I'm glad you clarified because I was very offended. You're not Jewish listeners, dude. Come on. I just, I know, I'm speaking for them. Well done. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. The Irish is uh, (laughs) speaking for you. So anyways, now that I'm back permanently, I want to talk about movies. And so I haven't seen a movie since in the theater since Lincoln. Yeah. And even then I saw that movie late. So last night I decided, bye, Joe. I'm going to go see uh, me a moving pictures at the cinema. And because I had never seen Jurassic Park in theaters, at least not the first one. I've seen the second and third one, unfortunately. Um, so I went to go watch the new release of Jurassic Park 3D. I took Brian with me. I'm not going to lie. I I got really just swept up in that movie, knowing yeah. already how it's supposed to end. That first moment where you see the brunt, the Brachiosaurus and they're by the Jeeps and like you just had that huge huge view of it. I got teary-eyed to listen to him go like, "Welcome to Jurassic Park." And the yeah. music swells. You're just like, "Oh my god, it's so real." Yeah. Isla Snores is the real island. I want to go there. Well, let me just say that people who remember our 3D episode know that I'm very skeptical of 3D movies. As am I. That being said, it was fucking amazing. Yeah. Like, according to Kevin Sutorius, our... Su-su-su-torius. According to Kevin, Spielberg was involved with the post-conversion. So he had a lot of control over how this was translated into 3D. Mm-hmm. And it clearly showed. I mean, it was it was believable. It was almost like the movie was meant to be shot in 3D at the beginning. Yeah, the there beginning. was there was clearly shots that he foresaw. He's, uh, you know, it's because Lucas is an alien, and he probably walked up to Spielberg and he's like, "Look, um, in a couple of years, they're going to be able to make this three dimension. So make the shots come at you because it's going to be great." And he's like, "George, are you kidding me right now?" He goes, "No, no, no. I'm I'm serious. You'll see. Just just trust me." And then he walks off into the mist. Right? So George Lucas is an alien, right? We all agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think might be alone on that one. <laughs> I think he became a pod person after The Last Crusade. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Can we agree with that one? Yeah. Yes. Sure. Good, good. Um, but I do agree. Uh, the, the 3D effects is, are, are amazing. The scene where the Jeep is falling out of the out of the tree. Unbelievable, that the, scene. The scene where the raptor jumps up into the air duct. I mean, just it's just so crisp. It's so clear. I it's jumped. Just, yeah. Times. I mean, I felt tension. Oh, Sarah's upset at us. Here's why she's upset at us, ladies and gents. You I are upset. Yawning. No. She's upset because she didn't get to go see the movie with us last night. She hasn't seen it in 3D yet, and we keep talking about it. Yeah, I'm a little sad. Yeah, I haven't gone to see it yet, but time has been a, a rare commodity for me lately. It's time. I'm not, not on, on your side. side. No, no, it's not. not. <laughs> that was good, guys. It was almost after we planned that. 
as well. That was good. But no, I recommend that anybody go see it. I think it's anyone who has seen the movie repeatedly, either on VHS or DVD or Laserdisc. <laughs> there are folks out there who <laughs> love Laserdisc. <laughs> anybody who's seen All the movie, three of you out there. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I knew a guy in high school who had a bunch of laser discs. Actually, did he use them as frisbees? <laughs> no, he, he actually have watched friends? them. What? Aside from you, did he also have friends? Yes, he did. Okay. Um, I think it was his parents. <laughs> Anyways, the thing is, is that you know how the movie ends. You know how the movie gets from point A to point B, and yet watching it in the theater, you are still swept up in that magic. You're still swept up in the story, and seeing it as an adult. Where, you know, especially now at this time where, where all of us are kind of at that point where we watch movies and we actually pay attention as opposed to being like 10 years old and you're like, oh, look, dinosaurs, that's so great. Now we're like, oh, people are talking. Let's listen to the dialogue. The scene where Malcolm or Jeff Goldblum gives his opposition where he was like, and you're standing on the shoulders of men it's and scientists. So that scene is just so brilliant. And those questions about playing God, like... I really found myself falling in love with that story again about the whole mm-hmm. playing God thing, which you know can still be, which still resonates to today, you know, with the massive amounts of science advancements that we have. I mean, granted, nobody's out there trying to clone dinosaurs, but um, yeah, I was just gonna say no. because I just found that woolly mammoth. I think in Iceland, no, there's, there's actually they have a list of something like thirty something species, extinct species that they are um, trying to bring back. Because they have DNA samples of it, including the dodo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did read that. And yeah, yeah. Tiger. Oh. I don't know about that and one. Are we talking like Power Ranger Saber Tooth Tiger? Are we talking like so legit like, Saber Tooth Tiger? First of all, let's just go back for a second. The moral of the story is don't be God. Or if you do, don't res- resurrect the carnivorous ones. But those are the exciting ones, Brian. Those are the ones people pay money what, to go see. Brachiosaurus wasn't exciting. That was breathtaking. No, it was breathtaking, but people are going to want to see a velociraptor. They can see a velociraptor and be very disappointed so that it did record, not look like I the know. one from Jurassic Park. Correct. Correct. Me if I'm wrong, but I think their paleontologists have figured out now that raptors were probably only about two feet they tall. They were only about two feet tall and they look like chickens. So in other words, you could kick one of them and you'd be okay. Yeah. Yeah, but the ones in Jurassic Park are scarier. No, so actually what they did was they modeled after another dinosaur. There's another dinosaur that looks closer to the Velociraptor as depicted. Well, if you but think about then, it. They've also realized now that dinosaurs, most dinosaurs had feathers. Or at least a lot of them did. Well, I mean, if you think about it, though, right? The book was written in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. The movie was made in 1993. And at that point, paleontology only had just a fraction of, you know, what they have now. Right. And at the time that they did, at have, the time they, that, they did yeah. have the information, though, that the Velociraptors were a lot shorter, and they still modeled them after oh. a different one. They were just calling them Velociraptors. Eh, okay. Yeah, there's also well, some evidence I was trying to, to save Spielberg on that one. There's also some evidence now to support that the T-Rex wasn't even a hunter. It was a scavenger. Because of its weak limbs, it wouldn't have been able to uh, stop it. Anything. Stop it, Sarah. <laughs> there was a, I saw a pin. Actually, I bought it for um, one of my friends who loves dinosaurs, um, and it's a T-Rex, and it says... If you're happy and you know it, clap your... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that why they introduced in the third one that one dinosaur the with, like, the Spinosaurus? Which was totally invented for the... Was it? Yeah, it I was. Thought there was legit, I thought there was legit claims that that dinosaur existed. I don't think so. There's a, there's what's called an Allosaurus, which is, looks similar to a T-Rex. I think it actually sit, stands Oh, yes, taller. we're talking about the Allosaurus Cooper. Yes. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was known for, um, for having these very distinct black circles around its eyes that looked like teardrops. <laughs> oh I'm proud God. of that joke. Thank you. Oh, my 
god. Anyways, the reason why we're talking about Jurassic Park... Um, Not only because that you guys just saw it. Right. And before we get into our topic, uh, I, I speak on behalf of everyone at Neuronomy when we say, you know, we lost a wonderful influence in the film community a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. Roger Ebert, who was a film critic, died at the age of 70 due to complications to uh, his cancer. He lost his battle finally. And he will be greatly missed by not only those that, that knew him personally, but also those that watched and um, read his reviews. Uh, me being one of them. Every new movie that came out, he was the first review that I would read before I actually saw the movie. Um, so it will be a little somber to not see what he had to say about you know newer movies that are coming out. Yeah. So I will say that it was very tragic too because it was just a day after he had announced that the the cancer had come back, but he was going to keep fighting. Yeah, it's sad. It's yeah. really sad. Well, and even the last few years of his life, um, you know, being without a good chunk of his jaw. Yeah. Um, it's been gone almost entirely since I think two thousand seven. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, he could no longer speak. He could no longer eat and drink on his own. When he was going out and giving talks, um, he was doing it through his computer. He was typing into a MacBook, and it was playing with a, with a different voice. And um, they did try to recreate his voice with a bunch yeah. of. Uh, they and did. It got close, but he said it still wasn't close no, enough. The reason close. why they weren't. <laughs> he, uh, I watched a TED talk that he was on shortly after his surgery, and he had his wife and two Chaz. other Chaz, and he had two other of his friends on there, and uh, before they went and read, but because he had written this huge speech. And so he, he let the computer do most of the talking, and then they each read an excerpt of what he had written. And they had – someone had compiled a bunch of his audio from the TV show back when Siskel and him did it and then up to him and Roper. They couldn't use all the audio. They could only use a, a, a portion of it because a lot of the audio, especially during when Siskel and him were doing the show, they couldn't take just his voice because him and, and Siskel were arguing so much <laughs> that they couldn't take all like the audio it. that they needed to create it. So, um, And that just shows you just how passionate he was about movies. Mm -hmm. I really recommend that everybody go to richardroper.com, who um, shortly after the show got canceled on, on uh, at least in California, ABC. He continued to do movie reviews, Richard Roper did, on his own website. And he does a tribute to Roger Ebert, stating that he would go to Cannes, and he would literally be in a movie theater from 8 a.m. until 12 a.m., just watching every movie. So much so that he cut a dinner short with Madonna just so he can go to bed early and get up early enough to go watch movies the next day. I mean, wow. this man loved movies to no end. He's kind of the person who we kind of emulate in that passion we have the same fire, I, at least I at least I believe, that we have the same fire that he had, which was to just the respect for movies, good and bad, expensive or not expensive, all movies of a walk of life. And it was just so great to see that somebody like him was able to voice his opinion because there are so many critics out there that don't really seem to have that passion. They just seem to just be very snobbish about the movies they review and they have this tone of just being completely... Uh, I don't know. You're the English major, like. Oh, we are. Brian and I already had this conversation a few episodes ago. Oh. When we did our critics episode. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> that episode, the one that I. Okay. Anyways, uh, well, then my two cents to that because this kind of does tie in. Um, his voice is, 
if he hates a movie, he's going to hate it, but he's going to hate it with, elo- you know, with a very eloquent way of saying it. Yeah, and it's not just say, this quote's been flying around a lot since he since he passed. But um, no good film is is too long and no bad film too short. Well, that sums it up for sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason we we're, we're tying the two of them together is because. A, we wanted to celebrate his life because of how much respect we have for him. And two, the segue from Jurassic Park into him was the fact that um, after we had decided that we wanted to commemorate his life, we did some spelunking on it after Brian and I had, had seen Jurassic Park. We thought, like, Ebert must have loved that movie. Like, he must have thought it was really great. <clears throat> he did not. <laughs> he, he, he did not like that movie at all. He, the only reason he gave it three stars was because of the, of the, um, the, the achievement in digital effects. That's what he gave three stars on. He felt, <clears throat> and this is also why I liked him because I could always disagree with him, uh, was that he felt that the human characters were flat and that there was no dimension to them whatsoever, which I disagree. I feel like Malcolm, if anything, if I had to pick, Malcolm is the, is the more fleshed out character. Yeah. I feel like Alan Grant is pretty fleshed out. Yeah. Ellie maybe I could do... So. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I mean, I would argue maybe she does. Maybe she could do a little bit more fleshing, but she's not. She is a she's character not, takes a back seat. But yeah, she, but I she's not two dimensional in any way. I think she's fleshed out. I think the kids weren't, not in the movie. They well, yeah, but I mean, if we're strictly talking about the movie, yeah, the, then, the kids were flat. Really? Yeah. I think there is a distinction between what was on the script and what we saw on screen. The performances those actors gave were very nuanced, very three dimensional. Whether the material they were given was flat mm-hmm. may be true, but I don't know. I have to watch it again and really dissect it and figure out where can we figure out that that came from the script? Where did that come from the performance itself? I mean, I will say that the lawyer is flat. I mean, he's... But he was meant to be. He's just meant to be... Right. I mean, he's the first one that dies. They are all very archetypal mm-hmm. characters. And I think Jeff Goldman's character particularly, he has got all the important... He's the moral voice well, yeah, he's of the... the story, but he has that very much that moral rebel outsider looking in saying guys are all crazy he's the fezzik Ooh, <laughs> callback <laughs> yeah now you got brian thinking Though i think he says a lot more than fezzik would have probably <laughs> and he didn't rhyme <laughs> he may not have rhymed but it did take him a hell of a long time to get those words out <laughs> you know and then uh, um, uh you know in just life uh, like Life, uh, life, life, life finds a way. It's like, get it out. <laughs> Smack. <laughs> t- 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 today, Junior. Um, so what? Uh, so do you have kind of a list? I know, I know. Ebert was also not a fan of Monster Zinc, in which my then I'm just in there going, dude, you're cray cray. I never, wa- I never read his review on Monster Zinc. I'm what, sure it was one probably of my friends had pointed that one out to me. Today. Was it? Yeah. Well. Um, Hmm. You know, like him or not, he he definitely had a way of writing his reviews. Well, no, he, the man was a, a fantastic writer, and mm-hmm. he always was very eloquent and and clever, um, especially in more of his negative reviews. He was always very witty about it, and I yeah. think that's something you could really appreciate. But the thing is, is he made a movie, which you watched last I night. I did. I'm going to get into that in a second. Okay. Um, but he did, you know, have a brief time where he went to go be a screenwriter, and he after that he was going to make another one. But his um, editors at the Chicago Sun-Times basically said that you can either make movies or you can judge movies. Pick one. And so he went and um, decided that he was going to stick to the newspaper game. I agree with his publishers. Yeah. So. you imagine a world where he decided the other and just decided to make movies? It would have been very interesting. I don't know how good he would have been at it because there are a lot of questionable reviews about his film that he so. did write. 
Let Speaking me tell of you. Which. Let me tell you about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because I watched it last night. Now, is it about dolls? No. Oh. So, Valley of the Dolls, the movie beforehand, was a movie about drugs. Dolls are um, a a word for um, oh, for I forgot the longer drug name, but it's a it's a short name for a, a downer. Okay, a particular type of downer. Okay. When, or when they were originally tossing out the script at 20th Century Fox, it was going to be a sequel to Valley of the Dolls, and they, yes. Question. Mm-hmm. Who did the original Valley of the Dolls? Is it him? Or no, he, no, 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 he no. just wanted to write a sequel to it? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. She's going to explain. No, the studio wanted a sequel to Valley of the Dolls, um, especially because this is, um, Sharon Tate was in the first Valley of the Dolls, and this is post the Manson murders, and Sharon Tate was killed. And then Valley of the Dolls was put back into theaters because, hey, why not make money off of a death? And then the studio said, well, why don't we go ahead and see if we can make a sequel off of it? They shopped two scripts, didn't like any of them. And then um, Roger Deber and his friend, uh, Russ Meyer, I want to say the name is, decided to pen a script and they came up with a story. But then they just decided it's not going to be a sequel. It's going to be more of a parody or a satire. And so ultimately what they came up with was this completely campy, schlocky, over-the-top, melodramatic movie. That but it's all intentional. It's all intentional. That's the point. If you look past the surface, what you have is... This is the soundtrack art. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's NC-17, and it's... Yeah, it's... It's a total sexploitation film, completely. Wow. The, there are boobs just for the sake of boobs, and sex just for the sake of sex. Is there a penis? No. Oh. It was the 70s. So? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they didn't have penises in the 70s. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Our biology classes have lied. <laughs> yes, men just recently decided to start developing penises. Yes. <laughs> Before, when they wanted to to procreate, they excreted it from their fingertips. Right. <laughs> Hence, how we got. Thank oh God, I'm sorry. <laughs> backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. Anyway, For the- so yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm sorry. Finger bang bang you into my life. Girl, you like to finger bang and it's all right. <laughs> I was always curious where the word finger bang came from, and now I know. Stopping. Anyway, so um, now if you look past the surface, what you have is purposely bad dialogue. The director never told the actors that it was bad dialogue because he wanted them to play it as straight as possible. But yes, it was purposefully awful. Yes, dear. I was just going to say, uh, Russ Meyer, who helped write it, was the actual director of the yeah, movie. Yeah, so Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert came up with a story. Roger Ebert wrote the screenplay. Russ Meyer directed it. And um, the scenes were actually rather interesting. I kind of really dug, the, especially there was like a party scene where they just started randomly introducing tons of characters and it was really fast. You almost weren't really picking up on everything. And it was, again, purposely bad. And it was rushed, like completely rushed and not fully fleshed out exposition. And it just kind of spirals out out of control. And so that was, I mean, that was what was going on underneath the surface. On the surface, the movie is like the most fucked up version of Josie and the Pussycats you can ever imagine. Hmm. More fucked up than the actual 1990s version of yes, Josie and the Pussycats? Like, Early 2000s. Whatever, they all bleed together. It's about a group of three girls. They're in a rock group. They go to L.A. The One of the boyfriends is, uh, one, the lead singer's boyfriend is their manager. Again, sounds just like Josie and the Pussycats. 
And then there's a thing about an inheritance and a lawyer who's trying to steal the money away. But then there's also a gigolo who's trying to convince this other girl to, like, so he could get the money. And then there's a lot of drugs happening. And then everybody's having sex with everybody except for this one chick who turns out to be a lesbian. And then she has sex with some other chick. And then there's, like, this one guy who is kind of, like, the catalyst for all the action that's going on. And he turns out to be, like... Well, I, don't, I can't give any spoilers, I guess, if anybody's going to watch it. But I, really I'm sorry. Is this really going to spoil the movie for them? Okay, so he turns out to be a transvestite by exposing these really badly made fake boobs, and then he beheads somebody? <laughs> it's so fucking weird. I'm confused. And the lesbian winds up <laughs> pregnant with some other guy's baby, and then this guy um, tried to... Are you confused about life, or are you just confused <laughs> about the movie? <laughs> and he, he, like, fell off the rafters, and then he, like, was... Wait, there were raptors in this movie? <laughs> raptors, not raptors. He fell off the rafters and tried to commit suicide, but then he just ended up paralyzed from the waist down, and then it was just... It was so ridiculous that when all this stuff was happening, I was laughing my ass off going, this movie is so bizarre... It's bonkers. It's br- it's brilliant because it's so fucking. The log crazy. line for the movie is: three girls come to Hollywood to make it big, but find only sex, drugs, and sleaze. Like I said, a really fucked up version of Josie and the Pussycats. There, there was like one scene where it was like the doctor walks out and he's like, he's gonna live a life as a paraplegic, and they're like, oh my god, and the the guys girlfriend who's the lead singer of the band like she's all upset and then the other chick who's in the band goes and i'm pregnant with his baby and they all turn to her like oh my god <laughs> it's hilarious it is so good <laughs> if you don't know the history of the movie going into it straight on you would just think this movie's awful no you would think it was completely terrible but it's a cult i mean it's a cult classic for a reason there's more to it than that it was that they was purposely bad and ebert's completely proud of what he did he will stand by that movie just because he's like, we did what we set out to do was make a satire of these awful sexploitation films and these completely ridiculous movies that were coming out in the 60s and early 70s. We did what we set out to do. Hmm. So, oh, there you go. Interesting. Um, I don't know if I'm going to watch that. I would watch it one night with a group if there was lots of wine involved. Yeah, I would need to watch it with other people. Well, I watched it last night while you guys were watching Jurassic Park in 3D. And, and who I, had a better time? I did. It was way fun. I think mm. we were, our fun meters were both equally topped. Set tapped. to the 10th while parsec. You guys, while you guys were, were weeping and, and being little crybabies, I whoa, was laughing whoa, my ass whoa, off. Whoa, 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 There was whoa, no whoa. weeping involved. That there was no during weeping. Toy Story 3. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And how many times have you seen Paper Man recently, Brian? <laughs> I didn't cry during Paper Man. recently. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's like, I literally just finished watching it while you were talking. <laughs> I saw the film Paper Man like five times. And, and every, every time, time I got emotional, yeah. Every time. If we're going to talk about movies that make you sad, I just watched United 93 the other day. Mm. I haven't seen that. <sighs> Yikes. If we're going to get into movies and how they make you feel... Like, if you ever were thinking, like, man, I want to watch a movie and then cry because I just feel like I need a good cry, put on that movie. That movie will make you weep. No joke, I wept for 10 minutes after that movie finished. I'm, like, walking around my house, like, doing chores, and I'm just, like, <laughs> like washing dishes. I took the trash out weeping. I emptied the litter box weeping. I was just <laughs> like, this is just no good. Uh, 
Uh, sorry, that was a side tangent. Going back to Ebert for a second, talk about a man who was also able to levy so much influence on the movie business, too. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but he's the only uh, critic I know who like had a front seat to the Oscars, not like just the press pass, but he was there to watch their ceremony, too, and not just cover it from, from the, uh, the press room. I don't know about that. I can't verify that one. Yeah. I do know he's the first film critic to win a Pulitzer. Yeah. The only one, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. Because it was more recent. It was, uh, no, it was in the 70s. Was it in the 70s? It was, oh, in, never it was mind. in the early 70s. Okay, so probably not. I then. think it was like 1974. Okay. Yeah. So he gave credibility mm-hmm. to the role of being a film critic. Absolutely. I do. Ha- I heard one really interesting anecdote where he was, um, when he was living in Chicago, and he went out to lunch with an anchor woman, a newswoman, and uh, was basically giving her a lot of really good advice about, you know, syndicating her, her television show and just kind of discussed it with her over a few hours at lunch. It was Oprah. It was Oprah Winfrey. Wow, really? Yeah. He gave her, like, the key to her major success for her TV show, yeah. And now she's a billionaire. Yep. Go figure. I mean, it's good that he stayed um, into the reviewing because we got a lot of gems. Like him or hate him, he, he, he watched a lot of bad movies, as we said. In some of the bad movies, he wrote some scathing reviews. But in the scathing, he had a lot of uh, well-placed words and wonderfully done sentences put together. Um, I found... <laughs> like what David just said. <laughs> Can I do that again, please? No. Thank you. <laughs> Go with it. You're stuck now. No! Um, Give us some highlights. Someone had compiled 40 of the hilariously mean Roger Ebert reviews. I'm not going to go through all 40. I'm going to pick the ones that kind of just stand out. Number three was Armageddon. And he writes, Here it is at last, the first 150-minute trailer. Armageddon is... (laughs) (laughs) Armageddon is cut together like its own highlights. Take almost any 30 seconds at random and you'd have a TV ad. The movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. Oh, my God. <laughs> no matter what they're charging to get in, it's worth more to get out. Oh, my God. Oh, this one I particularly like. <laughs> Battlefield Earth, which I saw myself, and I was a horrible film. He wrote, Battlefield Earth is like taking a bus trip with someone who need, who has needed a bath for a long time. It's not really bad. It's unpleasant in a hostile way. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, Freddie got fingered. He, this guy, it was he wrote such a bad review for it. Uh, he, this guy put it as number fifteen and sixteen on the list. He gave it two entries. Then he visits his friend in the hospital. A woman in the next bed goes into labor. Tom Green rips the baby from her womb, and when it appears to be dead, brings it to life by swinging it around his head by its umbilical cord, spraying the walls with blood. If you wanted to be that surprised, then I'm sorry I spoiled it for you. This movie does not scrape the bottom of the barrel. This movie isn't the bottom of the barrel. This movie isn't below the bottom of the barrel. This movie doesn't even deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence with barrels. (laughs) (laughs) And then The Frighteners, which um, I loved. I love that He hated The Frighteners? He He hated hated The Frighteners. I love The Frighteners. Okay, here's the thing, though. Frighteners, let's not kid ourselves. Frighteners is not a good movie. No, it's not. But it's a great movie. It's a great like, bad movie. craptastic. He writes, Last year I reviewed a nine-hour documentary about the lives of Mongolian yak herdsmen, and I would rather see it again than sit through The Frighteners. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Snap. He also has one in here that I like from The Skulls, and The Skulls is one of my favorite, like, holy shit, this movie's bad. 
He says, the Skulls is one of those great howlers, a film that bears comparison, yes, to the Greek tycoon or even the Scarlet Letter. It is so ludicrous in so many different ways. It achieves a, a kind of forlorn grandeur. It's in a category by itself. I found this at thoughtcatalog.com, and I'm sure you could probably navigate through their website to find this. But he had one for Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, which I found to be particularly uh, entertaining. If you want to save yourself the ticket price, go into the kitchen, cue up a male choir singing the music of hell, and get a kid to start banging pots and pans together. Then close your eyes and use your imagination. This movie has been signed by Michael Bay. This is the same man who directed The Rock in 1996. Now he has made Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Fast made a better deal mm. just one of the many uh scathing reviews i mean he talks about jason x but the thing is though is that when you watch movies like how to lose a guy in 10 days and jason x and you know freddie got fingered or things of that nature are you really expecting it to be good movies probably not no but you got some good words out of it that's for sure I've got some of his more favorable ones. It's almost mm. like a compliment to be insulted by him because oh, yeah. he's so eloquent with how he does it. Oh, yeah. <sighs> that means we missed our chance, guys. <laughs> well, it I just... don't think you'd ever review a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was so bad. Like, yes, I would yes. Rather, I would rather listen to 18 hours of cows mating <laughs> than, than listen to 30 seconds of this podcast. Oh, and that's, that's what we would call, call each other and be like, guys, we made it. <laughs> Ebert, listen to us. Hooray. He hated us horribly, but it's something. That's okay. Um, so yeah, so I have some of I have a couple of favorable ones that he wrote. Lay it on us. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Yes. He said a super a superb example of Hollywood's art and a time capsule of weathering sentimentality for a civilization gone with the wind, all right. Gone, but not forgotten. Oh. Is that lovely? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It says kids are not stupid. They are among the sharpest, cleverest, most eagle-eyed creatures on God's earth, and very little very little escapes their notice. If a movie isn't going to do your kids any good, why let them watch it? Just to kill a Saturday afternoon? That shows a subtle kind of contempt for a child's mind, I think. All of this is prefaced to a simple statement. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is probably the best film of its sort since The Wizard of Oz. It is everything that family movies usually claim to be, but aren't. Delightful, funny, scary, exciting, and most of all, a genuine work of imagination. That was 1971. Okay. To be clear. Um, I was going to say, wow, he really likes Tim Burton. No. <laughs> that was 1971. This was the original. Yeah, wow. Gene Wilder, yeah. David Wolper was the guy who directed that one. And Star Wars, because I want to hear his opinion on Star Wars, right? Yeah. It's as goofy as a children's tale, as shallow as an old Saturday afternoon serial, as corny as Kansas in August, and a masterpiece. Those who analyze its philosophy do so, I imagine, with a smile in their minds. May the force be with them. Nice. Which well I think that was, wasn't that really good? It just, it sums it up. Like, it it acknowledges its shortcomings. It's almost like. But its shortcomings are its strengths. When, when did he write that review? Did he write that as it came out? Or was it post I would imagine it, it, he wrote it when it came out. Yeah, because he was working at uh, the Sun-Times yeah, he was, he was already by that point. We, that I know now. that, but it sounds almost post-facto. Like, he's re-reviewing it after it already achieved the acclaim that it had. Could be. But maybe that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was his influence that got people to go see that movie too. So then I'm I mean also, everyone thought that movie was gonna fail. Yeah. I've also got Avatar and Les Mis. If you guys want to hear those ones. I don't know. If yeah, please. I would love to hear his take on Avatar because okay. I have my own opinion. So it says watching Avatar, I felt sort of the same as when I saw Star Wars in nineteen seventy seven. There you go. 
That was another movie I walked into with uncertain expectations. James Cameron's film has been the subject of relentlessly dubious advanced buzz, just as his Titanic was. Once again, he has silenced the doubters by simply delivering an extraordinary film. There is still at least one man in Hollywood who knows how to spend $250 million, or was it $300 million wisely? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give him that. I didn't like Avatar. I enjoyed it when I saw it, but post-facto, it was just like... The visuals were good. The story was Dances with stupid. Wolves in Space. You know, that's what it, it was Ferngully like. and Dances with Wolves. And like I've mentioned before, it is my friend and I have definitely gotten into this discussion of where we think it's um, a prequel to a Heart of Darkness-like story. A Heart of Darkness? Yeah, Heart of Darkness. It's a book. Joseph Conrad. Otherwise known as a movie called Apocalypse Now. Ah, yes, yes. Oh, mm, no. okay. yes mm. We'll discuss that later. That's that's not yeah. a subject for now. Fair enough. Continue. But, but I think what we can really get from this, though, is that Ebert... He was, His uh, he taste just, was, was varied. He just loved movies, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he loved a movie... I mean, he loved it, it with every fiber of his being. Yeah. And when he hated it, he hated it with every fiber of his being. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and he's a guy who sticks to his guns. Although, that's not to say that there aren't movies that he's revisited. Um, yeah. There are plenty that he's revisited. There was one that he, the, the most famous one is, I think, The Brown Bunny. He wrote such a scathing review about it. And then him and the director went into a, a battle of words. Pretty mean words. The director got really mean and, and went for personal attacks. And Ebert deflected it with humor and, and grace. So much so that it influenced the director to recut the movie and cut like 18 to 20 minutes out of the movie wow. and had him rewatch it. And when he went to re-review it, he gave it a more favorable review because he goes, okay, now it's a better movie because you cut that, you know, the stuff that was unnecessary out. So the man had clout. So Roger Ebert was an early investor in Google. This really? guy, he was, he was an early investor in Google and he was a complete champion for the blogosphere and the, um, like the internet commenting and blogging community so he would have loved us he would have totally been down with what we're doing and um he really encouraged people in the blogosphere um you know him starting his own website and basically working on on movie reviews online and and really supporting people turning that into an online forum even with his uh with his twitter etc because he had a lot of followers on twitter and he would actually respond to people on that on movie points and so yeah i think he really supported and encouraged developing that sort of new media our very own eric brickmont had given us a quote that um not really a quote but he had read from ebert's blog to show how much passion he had for the movies and how it physically affected him and he had written uh stating that it really stinks that the cancer has returned and that i have spent too many days in the hospital so on bad days i may write about the vulnerability that accompanies illness on the good days i may wax ecstatic about a movie so good it transports me beyond illness which i think we all can agree with that absolutely that there are films out there are certain movies out there Clearly, from your guys' conversation last week, that the Princess Bride transports you to individually and respectively to your own little places of euphoria, and it makes you feel a certain way. And it sounds like, you know, based upon the story that Sarah told with her uh, asthma attack, and she's like, oh, I just want to feel good. And she's like, oh, well, we're going to watch The Princess Bride. And then it, like, zonked her out. Like, it yeah. made her feel comfortable and, and relaxed. Maybe that's why James Bond puts me to sleep. He just makes me feel so cozy inside. It's a bullshit excuse, and you know it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Speaking of The Princess Bride for a moment, for me, what transports me with that 
particular movie is now the nostalgia of it. The having seen it so many times now is mm -hmm. rehashing those feelings. I will never have the adult experience of being able to look at it completely for the first time and say, wow. There's times where I've watched it and I realize, oh, wow, like I get things I didn't get before. Mm -hmm. But I wish I had that experience where I could watch it all from beginning to end, having never seen it before and still taking that experience. That being said, I think that what Ebert was saying was that movies are were his escape. Mm -hmm. And they've always been his escape. But this particularly was it was his escape from whatever was killing him, mm -hmm. you know. And I it's so powerful. And it's very true. Because I remember when I was writing my bio and sending it off to Sarah, and I at some one point said, like, oh, movies were his escape. And she said, don't use escape, because it makes people it makes it sound like your your life is really shitty. Or, and while that was very valid for the bio, it is true. Because, like, I mean, I didn't have a, a horrible childhood, but they were a way for me to, like, get away from life and get away from, you know, the especially now as an adult, where you have, like, bills to pay and shit to do and... And everything of that sort, they're a way for you to just kind of just shut off your brain or or expand your mind, depending upon if you're watching a... <laughs> I think there's a difference, and, and my point with this one is there's a difference between escaping mm -hmm. and escapism mm -hmm. versus a mental vacation or an exploration of your imagination. Mm. That was my point. Mm. For me, movies have been an escape. I remember there was a time about five years ago where um, it was not a rough point as far as everything else in my life, but there was a point where I was struggling financially. Mm -hmm. And as odd of a decision it would make that movies are still relatively cheap uh, forms of entertainment. And um, I'd probably go to a movie once a week just because I wanted that escapism. Mm -hmm. And I would find it, even if it was not you know, a popcorn flick where you're watching... Uh, Gerard Butler saved the, the, the White House. Exactly. Um... <laughs> Or John McClane save China. Russia. I don't know. Well, I'm, you could put anything in there. Right. It would be anything, you know. It's like going to see theater, too. There is a transcendental moment that takes place when you see something really, really profound on screen. Mm -hmm. And it's the reason why people still go to see movies in theaters. Even though there's every reason in the world now for people to stay at home and download a movie or get one on Blu-ray and watch it on their 90-inch you know, built-in IMAX theater that's in their living room. Who are these people? How can we be friends with them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, three words. American Express Black. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Anyway, people still go because they want that experience. They understand that communal, spiritual experience that you have from being in that place. And he clearly saw that. He cl Ebert clearly craved being wrapped up in that world. And that's what got me into film and what's really been my driving force in wanting to do acting or in writing it is a way for you to escape from life you know from the everyday trudges of having to you know worry about your rent and worry about your cell phone and your electricity and your water etc this is the movies are a way for you or at least for me a way for me to say you know what i just i can't deal with it it's my release it's my outlet and so i sit down and i watch something like heat or i watch Step Brothers because i want to have just that stupid giggle fest over the most benign conversations ever or you watch something that really gets home like the movie that really gets me going every time i watch it is garden state because i watched that at a period in my life where i was i was eight uh 17 or 18 when that movie came out and to me my senior year of high school was a very 
blatant journey. I felt like I was on a journey. And I felt like I was coming to the end of this journey and that there was a lot of these different crossroads. And I felt like everything had meaning. And so when I watched Garden State, there was a lot of subtle meanings to certain things that were happening in that movie. And it just spoke to me in just many ways. And I felt like that's a lot like life, where there's just all these different messages and these different themes that are running through your life that you just... You just all of a sudden at some point just you know it just clicks and it just connects to you and so that's why that movie just speaks to me so when i'm feeling very down about the way that things are going in my life or if i'm just feeling like i need to pick me up like maybe there is some sort of meaning to life i watch that movie and it gets me right up off the ground and maybe that's just because of the soundtrack i mean who knows uh but that that is one of the movies that i will always associate with this journey of life would you be interested to know what ebert thought of garden state no I'm scared. What did he think? I want to know. What did he think? He gave it three stars. Okay, okay. Garden State inspires obvious comparisons to the, with The Graduate. Not, the le- not least in the similarity of the two heroes. Both Benjamin and Andrew are passive, puzzled, and quizzical in the face of incoming exhortations. The presence of Simon and Garfunkel on the soundtrack must not be entirely coincidental. But The Graduate is a critique of the world Benjamin finds himself in. And Garden State is the world's critique of Andrew. All of the people he meets are urging him, in one way or another, to wake up and smell the coffee. All except for his father, whose anger is so deep he prefers his son medicated into a kind of walking sleep. Mm-hmm. Ian Holm plays the role with perfect pitch, making small emotional adjustments instead of big dramatic moves. Oh, I'm going to go home right now and watch this movie. You, <laughs> you are literally making me want to watch it right this now. Is, okay, so this is it. This is not a perfect movie. It meanders and ambles and makes puzzling detours. But it's smart and unconventional. Mm-hmm with a good eye for the perfect detail. Yeah. As when Andrew arrives at work in Los Angeles and notices that the spigot from the gas pump ripped from its hose when he drove away from the gas station, I love that moment, is still stuck in his gas tank. Something like that tells you a lot about a person's state of mind. So, you know, I, think that's, I love that movie. I have well, I think that's a really good review of it because it's, well, it's honest. And yeah. I think it's pretty fair. And it's interesting how it would give a three-star review to Jurassic Park slam it but love the effects and yet he'll give a three star review of this which is pretty much a, a pretty solid review yeah of it sorry continue well i think the idea of that movie specifically and he recognized it is that the point of that movie was to create an emotional state in not only the the characters and in the story but also in the people who are watching the movie yeah. and it was very successful at that and he's recognizing that i mean but that movie a hundred percent identifies what brickmont's quote was which is that a movie can push you in a certain direction and make you feel a certain way. And to this day, like I said, you know, that movie just makes me feel that way. And then there are moments where I want to have a very mysterious feeling about life. Or if I want to, from a writer's perspective, if I want to watch something that, you know, can influence me on in how to write a good caper or something, you know, I'll watch something like Heat or um, The French Connection. Just something where you get really good characters and that really good dialogue and a really good pace. And so, I mean, movies can certainly do that. I mean, Sarah, what what movies make you feel? What make me feel? Well, let's let, let, <laughs> let's be let's be pretty let's be pretty flat about it. What movie do you watch where either a it can make you feel sad mm-hmm. or depressed, mm-hmm. or the other side of the coin, which is make you feel completely engrossed in happiness? I know it's a big wide spectrum, no, but let's a wide let's look. Spectrum. So the thing is, is I. Uh, I feel like, at least for a lot of my favorite movies, they're ones that I guess have a, a specific targeted emotions or make me run the gamut of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my all-time favorite movies um, is Moulin Rouge. I should have known. Sorry. No, no, I'm just saying because... <laughs> I you... know not a lot of people agree with that. But... No, no, no. 
I uh, you, because you forced me to watch it. I will say it's good. It's a it is a it is a wonderful movie. Um, I love the visual stimulation for sure. It's all over the place. Damn you, Baz Luhrmann. And it takes you. I mean, it took me about five watches all the way through for me to really get all the detail and all the nuances of that movie. I love the story. I love the romance and, you know, the joy and then the depressing end. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, still there's still somewhat of a hopeful tone there. And I love the characters, the ones that are more cartoony and the ones that are a little bit more archetypal. Um, and, and I love it. Plus, I love musicals and I love singing along with stuff. Yeah. So well, that helps a lot. I think we <laughs> talked about it in our musical episode, too. My criticism of that movie is that it's got a great story. It does have a great story. Mm -hmm. I do enjoy that. Obviously, strong visuals, but it actually is the music. I wish there was more original content. The only there's only one song there's in there only that was one original song that was composed for that movie. Everything well, else, but that's the gimmick. I don't think it's the gimmick at all. Yeah, I think the gimmick is, the is gimmick. to make it a musical. It doesn't have to be pop songs necessarily. But that's the gimmick. Though. That that that. But that's Baz Luhrmann. Like you go into a Baz Luhrmann movie with that already kind of preconceived notion that he's going to use updated songs in a way that's going to help stylize that movie, well, i.e. Like, like Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet? Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> okay, but let's Romeo like, plus Juliet. So let me put on my, my take off my film nerd cap and put on my theater nerd cap for a second. Let's look at Spring Awakening. That show takes place in turn-of-the-century yeah. Germany. But and updated. all of the... Updated music. It's exactly. It's all, it uses all rock music that's written for that particular piece. And okay. it works very effectively. I think... That and with the the sake of Moanders, it was a matter of accessibility and also a sentimentality for okay. the particular for the yeah. <laughs> he's, he's Get out of here, caps. theater guy! We want film Brian back. He, he was actually literally switching invisible caps, and you didn't which notice makes this, but for, I put on a black turtleneck and black, very tight pants, and I just kind of sat like this. Right. Wow. Like sprockets, Brian. This is a podcast. You, you gotta stop over, doing like, a fart in church. I'm sorry. You gotta, you gotta stop doing the visual gags. Okay, it's not gonna work. <laughs> Have you like him doing the whole like, my thumb's coming off, guys? <laughs> Can you see it? Um, Sorry. But I think there's a certain thing about, about sentimentality. And I think what I liked about the fact that he was using familiar songs is that when you listen to pop songs and you listen to songs that definitely have um, a certain lasting credibility to them, we all have our own emotions that we put on that. We all have our own sentimental opinions of those songs, um, certain memories associated with it. And I think he was playing on that. Mm -hmm. So that's one that um, that really gets me. Amelie. I will actually, I'll watch that one sometimes when I, I feel like I, I want to... Feel French? If I want to just have, just have some, some happy. Just some happy. That That's one of those feel-good movies that I, I absolutely adore. Plus, again, style. I, I, you know, sometimes I'm really a sucker for stylized movies. You know. I'm either a sucker for them or I hate them. So it's really bizarre. Like, I love Sin City. Love Sin City. But you hate? 300. That's entirely... I didn't really care for 300 either. As I was watching, I was like, uh, cool visuals, cool visuals. I'm bored. I'm, I'm bored. That's exactly... Why are, they, why are they showing a sex scene? That's exactly why, why I was at multiple positions in the sex <laughs> and the, you know this is kind of interesting because we were talking about um brian you were talking about times when you were a time in your life when you were going to the movies all the time there was definitely a period of time in my life where i was having a pretty serious relationship with netflix <laughs> and i was just watching like it's not a relationship if it doesn't call you back i'm just saying 
Well, it, I don't care how good the intimacy is. It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it builds me every month. He, so <laughs> that's not a call. Oh, that's an abusive relationship. I'm a glutton for punishment. Netflix was <laughs> Netflix was using you, Sarah. Okay, wake you just up! Didn't and, understand, all right? If you saw what Netflix and I had, Sarah, wake up and smell. Walk, it's just not that simple. Sarah, wake up and smell the DVDs, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I won't let you negate my emotions. Anyway. <laughs> Be strong, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that was actually a period of time, and this is, again, really kind of weird, but this is actually a time when I fell in love with Doctor Who. And it was because, interesting enough, and there's there's actually a YouTube clip out there, if you guys can find it, where it actually explains Doctor Who almost as a religion. And it's kind of interesting because it does bring up a lot of points of the fact that um, philosophy and life and a certain code of ethics is brought up and so that's actually one of those ones for even though it's like really just good entertainment and it's funny and it's charming but it also really gets you thinking and so i love movies that will yeah. do that i think that'll be the case with any well-developed mythos because yeah. if you develop the characters long enough you will start infusing it with moral philosophy mm -hmm. and have different characters embody certain elements from that you can mm -hmm. say the same thing about star wars you can say it about superman oh absolutely you can say it about any pop culture character that's been around more than 30 years i would say sure yeah you could probably even do it if you have a really good like well fleshed out character in a single movie yeah. arguably mm -hmm. um, brian what are your movies the movies that make you either happy to like what's my emergency kit yeah it's so like if you're feeling really sad like what movie would you want to pop on to make you feel better or if you want to continue to feel sad and wallow in that what would you watch homeward bound Mm, no. That would be my wallowing movie. That movie kills me every time. I cry. <laughs> That's a good question. Man. Go on, pup. Oh, boy. See, the thing about these questions is, on the spot, I'm horrible at answering them. I mean, to actually, like, reflect on them. Uh, to be fair, we did have, like, a couple of days to think about this. Not that question. This is true. Not exactly that question. Well, it's a variation of the question. Okay, fair enough. Mine's, mine's totally weird. And I count these as movies because they played in movie theaters. It's T Turner and Hooch, isn't it? <laughs> you know, old school Looney Tunes. Oh, okay. Okay. I can always rely on And I have a bunch of them downloaded from iTunes on my computer that I will refer to. One of my favorites is the Barber of Seville one. Oh, that's a good one. This oh, is such a good one. Kill it's the Wabbit, right? No, no, no. Kill the Wabbit is What's Opera Doc. Oh. Though it is. The, those two actually are paired together when you, when you download oh. them. Um, no, that's... It's similar. It's... You're at an opera house... You're about to, the Barbara Seville's about to go on. And just before that, you see in the hills Bugs Bunny being chased by Elmer Fudd. And then he comes on and Bugs Bunny gets the idea that he's going to work him into the, the performance and put him on the spot. And, like, he opens the curtain early and they just start it. And he, Bugs Bunny being brilliant, knows the score to Barbara Seville and takes the, the melodies and just butchers them with his own lyrics. But it's hilarious. Like, there's a whole bit where he shaves him and they are nice and clean. Although your face looks like it might have gone through a machine. <laughs> <laughs> what about when you feel sad? I don't like to wallow in my sadness, personally. I want something to, to take me out of it. So I'll watch whatever is funny. Uh, Mel Brooks immediately pops in my head is one that I would go with. Um, Young Frankenstein. Of course. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> he said a set a give. Set a give. You know, actually... It's interesting. Even though Young Frankenstein is in my top three favorite movies, definitely my all-time favorite comedy. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily my f first immediate go-to 
when I need like a Mel Brooks pick me up. Is it Blazing Saddles for you? No, it's History of the World Part One actually. Not that, interesting. And Not I seen think that one. it's because of the fact that they're done like these little vignettes. Uh, yeah. I think I think except I when kind you get into Roman, like when you get into the Roman time, then the Roman kind of starts to the Greek one. Yeah, or the Greek. The Greek one's really the Greek one's long, and the French Revolution's long. It's it's Rome. Boom. Got it. Mm-hmm. My bad. I have here these 15. You come into Ten my cave and you dare challenge my moving knowledge. Why is my voice getting higher pitched as I keep talking? I don't know. Sorry. Remember that fart in church thing? Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Round two, bitches. <laughs> Round two. Okay. This time it smells. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I uh, ate eggs. Yeah, for lunch. Gross. Um yeah. <laughs> I guess for like sad movies, movies that make me sad that or I will like watch when you, wall- when you want to wall- when I want to wa- really want to wallow in my in my sadness. Hook makes me sad. Hook makes you sad. Oh, the whole run yeah. home Jack thing and like oh. the fa- anything run that has Jack. to deal with like yeah. a father, which I've found is really weird because I, I have a really great relationship with my father. But anytime there's a, like a scene that has to deal with like a father and a son in that relationship and there's either some sort of disjointedness in that relationship or like they're separated. I mean, I just, I, I die a little and I just, I get so susceptible to wanting to just weep about it. Cause I'm just like, I'm feeling sad. I want to watch this family just be torn apart. And I'm just like, Argh. one of the other movies that makes me sad is uh, drop dead Fred, which I've never really seen. All of oh, I must've seen it when I was a, a little kid. It's because of her, because of her relationship with her mother and how her mother's so overbearing and that whole, mm. um, personification of her releasing her inner child, Doing that actual releasing and rele- you know getting her out of the bondage that you know where she was never able to actually be a kid, like that for some reason just gets me. Yeah, just because the fact that there are people out there who don't have that because I I consider myself a big kid at times and so to not be able to have that or to to have it be stifled and then having to bring it back out. Yeah, and then losing like you losing that part of your childhood as a kid when you have to grow up and you can no longer have like the imaginary friend or the pretend and whatnot. For me, now that I think about those, because you were. Thinking about those emotional responses, yeah, I kept thinking about all my favorite Christmas movies. Oh right, yeah, yeah, Harry because loves Christmas. Oh, he does. Yeah, we talked. We had a lot of like this. Santa right now. <laughs> <laughs> Only eight more months, guys. <laughs> the movies that I watch every Christmas are stupid movies, but they're movies that. I have this connection to mm-hmm. like why do I get emotional when I see a moment from Ernest Saves Christmas? The movies, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's because because you think that Christmas is going to be gone, and Jim Varney proves to you that it's not. No, it's about the relationship about Pamela. Pamela is this lost child. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never say I was a lost child, but you know, I could I could connect with that. Brian, are you of, a lost boy? No, I'm not a lost boy. I'm not a vampire, nor am I. I lost my marbles. In Neverland. Oh, oh. I wish I could be in Neverland because flying would be awesome. But right. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. A hook. I remember as a little kid would definitely was a was a grabber. It's really sad when you really get to think about it. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's what's so great about movies is that they do they hit you in ways. Like, oh, okay. Case in point, you, you and I can you can attest to this because you and I went to go see Blue Valentine. Oh my god! Worst idea ever. So <laughs> I was broken up with uh, my ex girlfriend like a week before seeing that movie. Bad idea. We had no idea. Like we knew it was about a breakup, but we didn't realize how real that movie could get. And so we both go into there, and this was literally a year after 
um, you and I had broken up, mm. right? So mm. like we both go in and we're just sort of like, let's see what this movie's about. We're both, we both come out of the theater just like... <sighs> I, I remember we were both walking in. David, you were just like, an, I don't know how I feel about that movie. It's intense. <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's an intense movie in the sense that it literally, it feels so real in the way that the two, of, the performances are so good. That's why it's so intense. So, you know that movie, the, the play The Last Five Years, or the musical The Last Five Years? Yes, I love The Last Five Years. Same principle. It's one plot oh, line, okay. you see the relationship gotcha. falling apart. The other is you see them falling in love. Oh, Jesus Christ. The Last Five, actually. That soundtrack kills me. If we want to talk... Things that make you cry. Last five years, smack dab in the yeah. middle of that the show. The only difference is it's not as linear. Because okay. I, well, I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but okay. it's not as linear well, as the you, last five years is. But I mean, the movie, that's not ruining anything. Because that movie is all based on performances. I mean, pretty much you know it from the get-go that you see the beginning of the relationship, you see the end of the relationship, mm-hmm. and you see everything in between. Okay. Yeah. And it, it ends, like the movie ends with... A very dour note. Well, the movie, there's two, en- there's two endings. The, there's the ending of the marriage collapsing but there's also the ending of there's also it cuts immediately to their wedding and the ends in their wedding scene too so it's just really like yeah it's a it very plays like, emotions you're like like how, i don't know how to feel like how the last five years ends with, with, with a goodbye and a hello yeah for those who don't know the last five years is a musical written by jason robert brown it uh was on broadway i believe in 2006 yeah and um it's a favorite for theater nerds everywhere it's remarkable it is. It it's, is as a show. It's a two-person show, and it's remarkable. You can catch it on YouTube, actually. The entire show. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Nerds on theater. Nerds on theater. <laughs> Sorry, we're talking about things that make you sad, and Boy, I have to agree with Sarah. Yeah. That CD well, does that kills you. It's art, is what it boils down to. It's mm-hmm. art, and I have I have go-to books that I will reread over and over again. And sometimes any piece of art will just envelop mm-hmm. you. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. I have I have go-to poems. I have go-to movies. I definitely have go-to TV shows. You know, it's just, it's art. And for Roger Ebert, it was film. It was always film. I'm sure, I mean, maybe he was other stuff that we don't know about. You know, maybe he was, he was a very educated man. So I'm sure he he was a connoisseur of all types of things. But you always get back to your first love. And his first love was more than likely movies. Actually, you you want to hear another interesting anecdote? Do you know where Roger Ebert credits his... um, how he learned about movies and how to dissect movies. Hmm. Mad Magazine. He would read Mad Magazine as a kid and he would realize in their parodies, he would recognize that they were making fun of the flaws. All the same structure, all the same characters, all the same storylines, etc. Wow. And so he would learn how to kind of break it down based on parody. Interesting. Well done, mm-hmm. Mad Magazine. Yep. The more you know. So, uh, before we wrap up for the evening... Uh, we do have some. We have some listener, listener feedback. Corrections and feedback. Yeah. We had a, quite a few, actually. We have four pieces of feedback we're going to share with you this week. Jill, I do want to point out that yes, I did get your email. We talked about it in person. <laughs> She's my coworker, so. And Jill, for those of us who didn't get to see the email, thank you for writing in. So our first little bit of listener feedback came via email. It says, David Sarah Bryan. Normal gushing about the show, yada, yada, yada. Thanks. <laughs> yes, thank you. Now, Could I've... be a little more specific, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> now, I have managed to get through all the Nerds on Film episodes and working my way through the Nerds on History, and now I feel I can speak freely. 
With the release of the second World War Z trailer, I feel that another of my favorite books has been sacrificed to the altar of Michael Bay moneymaking, we all know is not filmmaking. I would propose an episode, or at least part of an episode, devoted to the destruction of good books by films, and the emergence of good book franchises as a result of a decent or at least visible movie. Examples of the first are boundless, and I would recommend starting with the most recent, Atlas Shrugged, and work your way back. My own personal heartbreak was Starship Troopers, loved that book, hate that movie. I like that movie. <laughs> Time out. I love that movie too, but it's just, how, just how craptastic the exactly. movie is. And it's... <laughs> uh, Co-ed shower scene, hello. Love that book, hate that movie, and it's two dry heaves that followed. <laughs> as for Holy de- shit. <laughs> as for decent movies that became booksellers, Carrie was probably a big factor in the launching pad for Stephen King's literary success and the fact that he could publish his grocery list and still make a killing. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was a pretty good adaptation, one that I'm certain led to a few young people picking up the novels. As for crap to crap, well, in the case of Twilight, a silk purse cannot be made out of a sow's ear. Cheers and thanks for many hours of podcasting enjoyment. As long as you keep recording them, I will continue to listen. And that's Ian from Vancouver. Ian, God bless Canada. Seriously. (laughs) Um, Thank you, sir, for your maple syrup (laughs) and your goodwill. And your hockey. And your Mounties. Actually, even though we don't get to use those This is going to be terrible. As a Sharks fan, I'm saying this. I don't hate the Canucks. I'm just saying I don't hate them. I don't hate him. And we lost every Sharks fan. That <laughs> and they're out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fuck you, sir! <laughs> anyway, Ian, thank you very much for this. I, and Jill kind of gave me the same feedback, um, which is why I'm not reading both emails. But um, what we are trying to do now as we are looking at our format going forward is we've done a lot of genre topics in the past. And we find that we're scratching the sur- surface of a lot of stuff, but we're not digging in deep enough. So what we're going to be trying to do is things more along the lines of the Princess Bride episode. Um, things where we're being kind of specific. I know I will be touching upon the topics of books converted into movies, especially when Great Gatsby comes out. Um, this is something that I'm really looking forward to, as you guys know. Yes. And if I may add, I've never read The Great Gatsby because I wasn't forced to in high school. But prior to this movie coming out, I will be reading this book. So that way, when I watch the yep. movie, we can have a f- full in-depth conversation, which I am very much looking forward to. Yes. So, the, so again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your feedback. I, I swear to God, and with our other emails, too, I love our, our listeners. You guys are great. Um, and we really do appreciate your feedback and your topic ideas because it helps just keep the juices flowing. So... Thank you. Will we maybe necessarily tackle a full episode directly about books to movies? Not likely, again, because it's such a huge, daunting topic. And even though I'm an avid reader, I don't have that much time. <laughs> Perhaps we could do, like, one book that was converted into a movie. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, book great, club. like great Gatsby. And eventually we can break these down into series. Mm-hmm. You know, we, this, no, a book series or Fireside a... chat with the nerds on film crew. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, we don't plan on stopping this podcast anytime soon. So there is plenty of time for us to cover a lot of these topics. And then we got another piece. Hi, Sarah. Hello. I wanted to start off saying that you and your That was creepy crew. as shit. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Well, hello there. Hello. How, are you How are you? What's up? <laughs> Quick stirring contest. You win. You always do. <laughs> I want to start off saying that you and your nerd crew have opened my eyes when it comes to watching movies. I have been transformed from a passive viewer to an active studier of film. 
The past few weeks have been filled with Nerds on Film podcasts as I try to catch up on what I've missed, and I am so excited to go back and watch all of my old favorites in a new light. So I'd like to thank you guys for sparking an interest that I never knew I had. Oh, well, Isn't thank that you. So That's awesome. That's really sweet, yeah. I like it. Now tell your friends to do the same thing. We need a, <laughs> we have an uprising of critiquers. Onward to the subject line of this email, which was Kung Fu Films. Kung Ooh. Fu Films or martial arts films in general. I have yet to hear any discussion on the genre of movie magic. As an avid martial artist myself, I am a bit biased towards the subject matter, but I would love to hear from all of you. What do you think of the genre? Do you have any favorite uh, movies or actors? What movies do you think have the best slash worst fight scenes? What do you think of the switch from more stylized fighting uh, you see in older kung fu movies to the grittier fighting of The Dark Knight and the Bourne films? Ninjas or Samurais? Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan? Donnie Yen or Sammo Hung? Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal? Brandon Lee or Mark Damascos? I don't know who that is, actually. Uh, Sorry, I get carried away sometimes. Thanks, and keep up the awesome work. David Mitchell. P.S. If you ever wanted to do just a podcast where you guys recite a movie, I'm totally down for hearing that. David, I'll give you my answer. Plain and simple, it's in four words. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> All right. Does that mean you liked it, didn't like it? Yeah, that was, that was pretty, <laughs> that, that that was pretty ambiguous. That represents my, my feelings toward all kung fu movies. Okay. Because that movie, it represents stylized fighting. It's got very strong visual effects, decent storyline, great acting in it, too. The plot's a little confusing if you don't understand the context of... It's actually a part of a bigger story. But um, it's a wonderful film. One of Ang Lee's best movies, I think. I myself am not really up on a lot of old-time kung fu movies. Um, oh, there am I. I did really like Kung Pao Enter the Fist. <laughs> I did recently watch Enter the Dragon. and Get was... out of the cave. Now. <laughs> yeah. That one was funny. That one was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was funny. I did recently watch Enter the Dragon mm-hmm. on television, and it was uncut except for the commercials. I mean, they didn't cut anything out, so it was a, it was took like three hours to get through. But it was definitely a movie that the martial arts were on uh, amazing. But it's one of those things where you can just have it on in the background and not pay a lot of attention to it and still kind of understand what's going on. I smell a second email coming. <laughs> so, uh, and that's not, no disrespect to Bruce Lee. Bruce mm-hmm. Lee was an amazing oh yeah martial arts. Martial he was an amazing martial artist, but um, it was definitely a, a movie that was selling him as the product, not the story at all. So um, there's that. But we can definitely talk about, I think, sure. one martial arts movie. I would love to do Crouch, Dagger, Hidden Dragon, do do an analysis on that if you guys want to see the movie I'm down. as your research. I'm, yeah, I'm also down to do a Jackie Chan movie, too, and not like Rush Hour. I mean, like Mr. Nice Guy or one, one of, of the ones, Hong Kong movies. One of the Hong Kong movies. Oh, what was the, um, oh. The Drunken Master? That one, Drunken Master. Yeah. That one's funny. I didn't see that one, but... I've seen it. But he's literally... I've actually watched more Jackie Chan movies than I actually remember, because whenever they come back on, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I've seen this one. <laughs> hey, factoid. Jackie Chan was actually a stunt double for Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. Oh, no mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. That was how we got his start. And also okay. factoid, Sammo Hung, which he mentions, was Jackie Chan's uh, mentor. Oh, okay. I did a report on him in sixth grade. Oh, that's cool. I, I got to choose... Clearly, clearly, as we as we have established, yes. if you know just a minute amount of information, you are an expert. The experts. Okay, um, moving on with our uh, with our emails, and this one's in response to our Princess Bride episode. We have two actually. Ooh. Yes. Hi everyone. I was just listening to your To Blave podcast for the third time this week. First off, thank you so much for listening <laughs> it more than once. And I can already tell that this particular episode I will never tire of. 
much like the movie you discussed. Um, hence why we're actually thinking about going more specific with a lot of our topics. So thank you for pointing that out. This movie is one of my favorites, if not my most favorite. I don't watch it on a regular basis, but when I do, it never ceases to be funny or entertaining. I don't have a favorite quote or scene from the movie. I have many. I also have read the book, and thank you for correcting my belief that Mr. Morganston was a real person. I'm sure I haven't been the only person to think that over the years, but still, thank you. Um, I read the book myself, and I saw the movie many years ago and only seen it once. <gasps> I know, I know, but I've seen it at least. Okay. Um, but I too, as reading the book, took me a while to to, to comprehend the fact that this that this yeah. writer is completely fictitious. Right. So you are not alone. And Sarah, I do think Buttercup is more charismatic and a little manic in the book versus the movie. Agreed. Anyway, I believe it was mentioned that someone had written a musical version of The Princess Bride, and I wanted to point out that a rather remarkable song had has already been written about The Princess Bride called As You Wish by Alisana. I don't know if you have heard it before, but I'm including a link to the lyric video so you can check it out if you want. Sean, if you could actually cut in a clip from that song, that would be delightful. I will climb the hills, Best wishes from an avid listener, Hillary. P.S. This band has also written songs based on uh, Greek uh, and Roman mythology, history, fairy tales, Edgar Allan Poe's writings, and Dante's Inferno. It may not be the genre any of you listen to, but they are very uh, they are a very talented band, and I encourage you to look into their discography. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Hillary. Thank you, Hillary. I appreciate we uh, the we tip. love hearing feedback like that. Um, thank you for being such a loyal listener. We truly appreciate it, and thank you for sharing your love with the Princess Bride as well and now a correction <gasps> about the princess bride bum, bum, bum. what okay you guys were partly wrong about the book version of the of princess bride incorrect no i'm kidding just okay. wait jesus just christ <laughs> brian I just get very defensive when someone says i'm wrong i know you do you need to relax down boy <laughs> down Are, can we can i get through the whole email first before we say anything can we agree to that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. You guys were partly wrong about the book version of The Princess Bride. There was a outer story involving family, but it was packed into the introductory chapter. As I recall, the story was that the author's father had read him this wonderful book when he was a kid, and it became a tradition for that to be repeated occasionally. Years later, all grown up, the author was having trouble connecting to his own preteen son and had an idea. If the boy would read his old beloved book, they could talk about it and maybe find some common ground. The boy tried, but gave up, saying it was incredibly boring. The author then opened the book himself for the first time ever and discovered that his father had skipped major portions. I guess maybe he's, um, or she's trying to say that um, the, the editor, not the author, because the guy who is the editor. Okay, anyway. Uh, discovered that his father had skipped major portions, whole chapters and groups of them in his supposed veiled political satire when reading them aloud. So he decided to rewrite the book, omitting the boring stuff. Throughout the rest of the book, he would occasionally interject things like six pages of Humperdinck's genealogy deleted to keep up the pretense. I remember being disappointed that he would never, or that he never brought back his own son back into the story. Uh, to give the boy's reaction to the good parts version. I do have a hazy memory of him recalling his own initially negative reactions to the kissing scenes, but that may be my own mind superimposing the movie onto the book. 
The other big difference I recall from the movie, aside from the ones you mentioned, is that the original ended on a down note, with Wesley and Buttercup thinking that they had escaped, but Humperdinck was closing in on all sides. I think I remember Goldman giving alternate endings so you could choose whether to have that downer or not. Sadly, I no longer own the book, and the copy at my local library has been checked out, so I can't verify all of this. Please do check before taking my word for it. Regards, Bree in Illinois. Book slash sci-fi nerd. First off, the fact that you classified yourself as a book and a sci-fi nerd, mad props. Mad props. Here's what we have to say about this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for writing, and thank you for very much clarifying what the editor's take was on the book. We did mention in the podcast that there were asides from the narrator, um, but being that Brian and I had never read the book, um, we couldn't really give to any detail on that. So I'm really glad that you were able to fill in those blanks. Um, But, you know, we were kind of very specifically talking about the movie because that was what we were familiar with, right? Right. So I wouldn't necessarily, I would just say that we just didn't have all that information. And I thank you for, for bringing that to light. So. Awesome. And I will I will agree with her that mm-hmm. there is a there is a story that mentions that the father would skip certain parts. Yeah. How heavy it is in that I don't think it's that heavy from my recollection. Yeah. There are certainly asides where he does go into certain situations where chapters will end. Yeah. And then the the editor's notes will be like, and this is the part where my father would stop, come to find out that X, Y, and Z had happened. Yeah. So I mean yeah. And I think the point that I was driving at was: Does that detract from the fairy tale story, or does that does that shape the fairy tale story at all? Or is it just a, a commentary? Well, because it, because our our major point was this was referring to the movie was that Rob Reiner had described it as a story about a grandfather, a grand teaching grandfather his, and a son, right, teaching him about true love, right. Yes. So by adding the external story, he reshaped the intention of the story, and adding the external story in the way that he did, not saying that there was no external story right. in the Princess Bride book, but that it was not necessarily the same exact story as the movie. Right. Yes. So I think that was I think that was the point that we were trying to drive home, and I apologize that it didn't necessarily come across as that way. But again, thank you very much for um, really filling in those those details and that feedback because I know that our listeners who may not have read the book like us. Um, will now take that information and and have a little bit more of an informed idea about about what they're getting into with the book so thank you brie for writing in thank you brie it was great so awesome i ah, god damn it i love our fucking listeners you guys are great (laughs) you guys make me so happy you have no idea and and we got um we got several emails the past um two weeks so thank you very much that's fantastic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yay keep writing yeah and we're getting consistently about uh, two twitter followers a day as well. That doesn't sound like much, but considering we would go like a week or a week or two before we get a new follower, that's... I have almost 20. <gasps> look at you. Sarah, look at you. I know. That's fantastic. Well, speaking of Twitter, uh-huh. if you guys want to follow us, uh-huh. you can follow our group at Nerdonomy. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can also follow my personal Twitter account at Brian Moriarty. You can follow me at SarahAsh16. Or you can follow me at David C. McGuire. And if you do want to give us any sort of further feedback, you can email us at thenerds at nerdonomy.com or through our feedback button on the homepage for nerdonomy.com. Mm-hmm. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And please listen to us next time. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Bye. Bye-bye. And roll credits.
And now, famous movie quotes you should not say during sex. Do you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> <laughs>